How good to start a new series. We want to look through Matthew chapters 5 through 7 in this series and the, and the Sermon on the Mount, as it's often called. But we've rather called our series The Kingdom Heart to try to get to the point of all this because that's what Jesus is doing in this teaching. He's showing us and, and calling us into a new way of life as he plants inside us a new heart, a heart that is fit and being made more fit for his kingdom. Oh, spoiler alert, sorry. That's the big theme, though, of this series, and it's in the title, The Kingdom Heart. And we're actually coming back to Matthew's Gospel to do this, to listen to Jesus here, because we earlier spent some time here already in our series, The Christ. Do you recall that series? We looked at the bookends of this Gospel of Matthew, the the first four chapters and the last few at the end. And we learnt then who Jesus is, the promised King of the Kingdom, one who can baptize people with the Holy Spirit of God and with fire, the Son of God, God with us. And now we're, we're going to drop back into Matthew again to tune into some of Jesus' teachings. And so it's worth that short recap on chapters 1 through 4 to remind us that we are listening here to the words of God as he took on our human form and taught us these things. We surely ought to listen, don't you think? Our journey begins in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. We can straight away see why this is sometimes called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus went up on the mountain, verse 1. And when his disciples came to him, he taught them, verse 2 says. But who exactly is Jesus speaking to? Who are these disciples, in verse 1? And who, for that matter, are these crowds? In our previous series, at the end of chapter 4, Matthew had told us who the crowds were. Glance back up the page to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Those there are the crowds following Jesus as we now break into chapter 5. People from Galilee in the north of Israel, Jerusalem and Judah in the south. People from the wider general region of Syria, Decapolis and, and beyond the Jordan. Lots of people from everywhere are following Jesus. That's the crowds, but who then are the disciples in chapter 5 and verse 1? And what does that word even mean? Well, the word simply means a student. Someone who sits and listens to and follows the teaching of a teacher. And Jesus is here teaching, so I guess his disciples that came to him, verse 1, are, are at the very least those who came forward to listen to what he has to say here. 
And perhaps, though, even more so, they were people that had had started listening to Jesus generally, not just on this occasion. It wouldn't seem to mean the twelve disciples that our minds might instinctively race to, which a bit of context will help us to see. If you glance back again to chapter 4 and verse 18 this time, you'll see that Matthew has only told us so far of Jesus calling four of those guys. Matthew chapter 4 verse 18, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Matthew himself will only be called by Jesus to follow as his disciple later on in this gospel, in chapter 9 and and verse 9, if you want to track it down. So it seems pretty unlikely, therefore, that the word disciples here at the start of this teaching we're looking at in chapter 5 is talking about the twelve that we all know. Rather, it seems to be those who are following and listening to Jesus at this point in time. But does that mean the whole crowd who had been following him? Or a smaller group from within that crowd? If we flip over to the end of these teachings, at at the end of chapter 7, we see there that crowds are still actually there with Jesus, listening to him. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Are those crowds with Jesus at the end of chapter 7 there, crowds of his disciples? Back at the beginning of chapter 5, where we are today, are the disciples who came to him just another way of referring to the same crowds that had been following him since chapter 4? Were they all following Jesus and listening to his teachings? Or is there a specific group, his disciples, within that large crowd? I'll let that question sit for now, but we'll need to keep checking back in on that as we go. At any rate, Jesus actually then defines his disciples, not in terms of helping us figure out which ones or how many disciples he's talking to here, but in terms of what his disciples will be like. He says in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're anything like me, you might have skimmed over that list and thought, which one am I? 
I suppose I'm a bit of a peacemaker. Well, kind of, at least. I, I think so. I don't know. I guess, I guess, therefore, if I can nail that one, uh, peacemaking, I'll be called a son of God. Or perhaps we might think, you yeah, know, well, my, my life has been miserable, but I guess one day, therefore, I'll be comforted. Whatever that means. But Jesus isn't giving us a pick and choose list here. Jesus is giving us here a holistic picture of the same kingdom heart that he intends to put into all of his disciples. In other words, all of these things apply to all of Jesus' disciples. This is one multi-angled picture of the same kingdom heart Jesus desires for all of his people. And we can see that by first looking at the bookends around that little section in verse 3 and in verse 10, where the reward is exactly the same. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, which one is it? Is it the poor in spirit who have the kingdom of heaven, or the people persecuted for righteousness' sake? Or do they both get to go in? We're overthinking it and missing the point. They are all the same people, poor in spirit and persecuted for righteousness' sake. These are just basic characteristics of Jesus' disciples. And so too, if we now look again at all the verses in between those two bookends, the, the rewards at the end are well, they're just other ways of saying the same thing. To be comforted, verse 4. To inherit the earth, to be satisfied, to receive mercy, to see God, to be called sons of God. These are, these are all things that will, in the fullness of time, come to Jesus' disciples with the kingdom of heaven that is already ours. Jesus is speaking in all these lines here about one and the same people, his disciples, to whom he came to give the kingdom of heaven. And we must be careful to remember just how he gave us that kingdom. Otherwise we might come at this wrong and, and make the fatal mistake here of thinking that, that these are all things we must first do if we're to receive the reward at the end. And some Christians get tangled up here wondering if, if Jesus' sermon is I don't know, law that, that overrides or contradicts his gospel of grace. They start thinking, we must live this way to enter his kingdom. But this can't be a way of earning the kingdom. It can't be a way for us to earn the kingdom, because in our previous series, if you recall, in chapters 26 to 28, we've already seen how all this ends. Jesus died for our sin on the cross, to save us into this kingdom. If we could have earned that, then, then that bloodied end of this gospel makes absolutely no sense. No, Jesus died for our sin. And therein, chapter 5 and, and verse 3 and verse 10 here, the kingdom of heaven is, present tense, already ours. And all of the rest will follow in due course. We cannot earn what is already ours. Rather, Jesus describes here the change we should be looking for in the meanwhile because he wants to work this kind of change in us through our new kingdom heart. 
This list then at the start of our text tells of how Jesus' already having the kingdom disciples should now increasingly be. The second parts of these lines describe that certain heavenly destiny for Jesus' people. And the first parts, therefore, describe how those people will now live. Perhaps we might hear his desire for our, our new kingdom hearts afresh in these things if we, if we read them again in reverse. I mean, if these are simple connections, you know, one side of the equation points to the other, then how would they flow the other way? Blessed are those who've received the kingdom of heaven. They are poor in spirit. If Jesus has blessed us with the kingdom of heaven, then, then we can only know more and more here on out just how poor in spirit we are, that we are dependent on Jesus' grace for that kingdom we've received, that this kingdom was given to us through his blood, not some riches that, that we brought to the table. The comfort that he has secured for us in the end is such that in the meanwhile, no earthly comfort truly is comfort at all. If our hearts are now longing for heaven and the comfort of heaven, and we've, we've caught a sense of that, then our hearts will be mourning in, in some shape or form, even in the best that this world offers, not to mention in the worst that this world offers, and in our ongoing wrestle with sin and weakness and shame. If Jesus has set the world aside for us, yes, even us, then we should be meek like our Saviour was for us to receive that. He humbled himself to death on a cross for us to receive that. How then could we, his disciples, now live high and proud? It wouldn't make sense. We know we will be satisfied by the promise of Jesus, and not just for the food and the drink that we need here and now and the things that he gives here and now, but even for his very own righteousness that he took away all of our sins so that we could receive. We will receive mercy from God through Jesus our Saviour. And so surely as his disciples, we too should show mercy to others. If we're to see God at the end, should he not first be renewing us and, and making us pure in heart for that glorious day? If sons of God we will be called, shouldn't we also be peacemaking? Just as God made peace with us through Jesus the Son, that we could be called sons of God. If God has so blessed us this much in Jesus... Wouldn't then we, his disciples, somehow reflect that in our life? Jesus is showing us here what his disciples are like. If the gospel of the kingdom of heaven has been planted in our hearts, then, then we will see change in our hearts in such areas as these. Because he will be changing us in such areas as these to be disciples more and more like our teacher. And so too, if we were to run through that list again, thinking about all the opposites of these kinds of things, I guess Jesus is showing us here what we shouldn't be like anymore. 
no longer feeling that we're holier than thou, not thinking we're having our best life now, not arrogant with pride, nor chasing hollow or temporary things, nor hard in our heart towards others, nor mixed up and confused in our heart as to our worship, not seeking vengeance against others, and nor yielding to the sinful pressure of this world. Why not those kinds of things anymore? Because now we are disciples of Jesus and his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is ours. Fittingly then, Jesus keeps making the connection here between the certain reward in heaven and being his disciples now. And he makes it much more direct and more personal for his audience. Look at verse 11 and verse 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. On whose account were the Old Testament prophets persecuted for? The Lord's. God's account. Yahweh commissioned those prophets. On Yahweh's account, they were persecuted. Just so, says Jesus. Just so, if we are his disciples, we can expect persecution. But that will only testify to who we now are the people of God, who will be rewarded greatly in the kingdom of heaven. But so too there in verse 11 and 12, note the witness factor that flows out of that truth. We will be persecuted like the prophets before us because we are proclaiming to the world like the prophets before us the word of God in Jesus Christ. And many in the world don't want to hear that word. And so they will lash out at us. As Jesus elsewhere said in John chapter 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so Jesus hasn't given us this new kingdom heart just for our own personal need of change. He has his disciples in the world to bear witness to everyone about him and his kingdom. Like the prophets of old. So often we're given to wondering about the why and the, and the how long of the meantime if we know that we're bound for the kingdom in the end. Well, here's a good angle on that. Jesus wants our kingdom heart to bear witness to the world. And so, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The kingdom heart makes Jesus' disciples different. Not like the world anymore, but different. Jesus strikes up these metaphors here to help us find our place as his disciples among the crowds of the world. We are like salt in a flavourless, characterless world. If we water down our kingdom distinctive, that we are disciples of Jesus, then we would again just be like all the other dust of the earth. Some Christians genuinely, genuinely want to show outsiders that we, you know, we're not weirdos or, or, or holier-than-thou freaks. This verse might help anchor that goal. We might seek to be all things to all people, as the Apostle Paul puts it. But do we have the same motive? That we might win some for Christ? Or are we just being flavourless? We are salt, Jesus says. We are light. We are a beautiful city. Jesus has not left us in the meanwhile to be to be dust or darkness or desert in this world. That's what it's like out there. Our kingdom hearts are to be a clear kingdom witness in this desperate world. So Jesus opens and frames this long teaching. Jesus' people look different to the world. And they're in the world to look different to the world, to bear witness to him. We won't bear Jesus' witness if we look just like the world. He has given his disciples a new heart for his kingdom. And he wants that our kingdom hearts now bear him witness to the rest of the world. Some Christians will look at Jesus' teachings here uh, that we're going to look at in chapters 5 through 7 and, and they think, this is too hard for us. We all the more, therefore, just need his grace. And while there's a very, very healthy truth to that, it doesn't do full justice to what Jesus is saying here and calling us to pursue. Some Christians will say this mustn't apply to us yet. The kingdom heart must be for when the kingdom comes in full. But this text is thick with present tense language and a mission for us right now to do. We are blessed. We are salt, we are light, we are the city on the hill in this world. Some Christians might come at these teachings of Jesus and say, well, maybe this doesn't apply to us anymore. Jesus was talking to Jews, helping them understand the Old Testament law that they'd missed. But he's laying this down for those who belong in his kingdom of heaven. And no, that isn't only the Jews. Jesus says that these teachings are for his disciples. We who have been saved by his grace to inherit the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you, he says. Not blessed will some future people be, or will you be only in the future. You are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, the city on the hill. You're not people who, because of your complete need for Jesus' grace, cannot be salty or lit or publicly visible for living these things out. But people who now, by his grace, can be these things. And here we find that Jesus is, is putting us in a strange now, but, but not quite yet kind of tension. The kingdom is coming in full at the end. But so too the kingdom has already broken in to this world in the lives of us, his people. He's already given us a new kingdom heart that seeks more and more after the kind of reshaping he wants to now do, such as in verse 3 through verse 10. And yet yet the rewards of all this, while, while certain, are still yet to come to us in full, as per verse 4 through verse 9. Because of that now but not quite yet tension, Jesus' teachings here cannot just be you know, hypotheticals about, about what could have been otherwise or, or, or what we should expect in the end. Because it has already started in our hearts even now. Jesus has saved us by his blood, not to keep living our lives like the rest of the world, but to be different here and now. Jesus wants more than just saving us by his blood. He wants to transform us now to his kingdom way. He has given us a kingdom heart now. And he's putting these teachings in front of the eyes of our hearts to pursue. Not to feel defeated by such that we never even try. Not to feel shut out of this at this point in time. He has given us a kingdom heart now. So we can expect the rest of this Sermon on the Mount, as people call it, to to, to be showing us what he wants that kingdom heart to look more and more like. What it actually means to be salty, to be lit, to be a city that the rest of the world can right away see is, is different and is of Jesus. He has given us a kingdom heart now so that we bear witness to him, to him in a tasteless and dark and left outside world. And so if we come back to the opening question that I posed, you know, perhaps Jesus is here speaking specifically to his disciples, those who are following him and listening to his teaching and trusting in him, but speaking to them in, in the midst of a wider crowd of people who at this point in time might be neither here nor there on Jesus' teachings, but rather just you know, following along to see, to see a bit more of who this Jesus is and, and what he's all about. And they will hear of the kingdom. And they will see his disciples following him. And some of those people will be drawn into the same. If Jesus calls us and calls us now to, to be his kingdom people and kingdom witnesses in this lost world, how could we you know, listen to the rest of his sermon here and just be thinking hypotheticals or theoreticals? Jesus wants to reshape us with a kingdom heart now and with purpose. 
So I want us to go into this series and, and into Jesus' teachings here with, with open kingdom hearts, willing hearts, hearts that are keen to pursue what Jesus is putting in front of us here to now do. And I want us to do that because I think that's what Jesus wants too. To learn more and more, to, to submit to the kingdom heart that he has given us even now. So look forward to the rest of Jesus' teaching in this series. We're planning on about six weeks of Sundays here, getting, getting a broad sense of what Jesus is saying, and then the whole term in our small groups, drilling deeper and deeper in. But for now, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you as always for your scriptures, that you have given us your word, and we thank you as we open uh, these chapters that we can look into Jesus' teachings here in the weeks in front of us. We pray that as we do that, you would help us to tune in, tune into what he's actually saying here as we work through these few chapters of Matthew, but soften our hearts so, so that we will know all the more that the kingdom is ours even now by your grace to us in what he did for us. And then soften our heart even more then such that your spirit will take these words and grow us and shape us as you want us to be. And give us courage to bear kingdom witness through our new hearts to the world that still needs to discover Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.